You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Ken, on June 5th, opened up the series um, with this question, what is the Spirit of Jesus saying to the church? And I think it's the most important question that we should be asking right now as the church. Because Jesus is actually alive and well and communicating to us. Do we have the ears to hear it and the courage to live out what we hear him saying to us? Right? So it is the right question. I'm so glad that we're having it or we're asking it. And then he said this. He said, my prayer and the prayer of our pastoral team is that we would be disturbed and invigorated throughout the duration of this series. Now that's dangerous. When your pastoral staff are praying that you would be disturbed and invigorated. But it's actually natural, too, because in this moment, when we convene together, yes, this is a time of encouragement and worship, but it's also a time where we should be disrupted. The parts of us that don't look like Jesus should be tilled up in these moments. There should be things that we walk out going, gosh, I got to work on that. I got to confess that. I got to lament that. That's disturbing. And then invigorated, Jesus died and rose again, and we get to join him in ushering in a new world as we walk out these doors. And so there's a lot to be excited about too, and so disturbed and invigorated. Then, if you remember, Tim Dearborn came in and he said, unity in diversity is God's way of interrupting enmity. Not unity in homogeneity. Unity in diversity is God's strategy. And then Rich Stearns followed it up by saying, make mercy and justice a priority in our world. And then Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil said, God is inviting the unthinkable to join him in his work of restoration. She reminded us again that God is not looking for the qualified and the equipped. He's looking for the available. And that's oftentimes the unthinkable. And then Richard Nishi, or Roger Nishioka rather said um, he blew up our concept of dual citizenship, which I loved. I wasn't expecting it. And so if you haven't listened to his message, he monkeys with you right toward the end where he's talking about how we live as American citizens and as kingdom citizens. And sometimes American citizenship trumps our kingdom citizenship. And so he's talking about the dualism of these two. And then toward the end, he says, actually, we don't have a dual citizenship. We are kingdom citizens. And so the question for us is how do we live as kingdom citizens from within the context of the American empire? Huge question for us today. Huge question. Two weeks ago, Renee Sunberg, she said, do whatever you need to do to rekindle your desperation for Jesus and your focus on other people. Do whatever you have to do. And then last week, your very own Lori Brenner reminded us that Jesus says to us, you are beloved, you are chosen, and so are your neighbors, and so are your enemies. And so as I've been listening in, um, I've been disrupted, and I've been invigorated, and I wonder, how have you been disrupted? Are you invigorated? How has your life changed in these last two months because of this conversation about a borderless gospel? Because the world has changed throughout the duration of this teaching series. Think with me for a moment. Uh, 
as this series, shortly after this series began, the Orlando massacre that targeted the LGBTQ community claimed 49 lives. Then a couple days later, it was World Refugee Day where we acknowledged the fact that today there are 65.3 million people who have been displaced from their homes because of violence. Friends, that's one in every 113 people on the planet are displaced because of violence right now. And then shortly after that, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile added to an already long and growing list of black brothers and sisters who have been killed by police on videotape. Thank God that Charles Kinsey, the black therapist who lay on the ground with his hands in the air, was only shot in the leg and didn't become another hashtag in the, in the war between blacks and whites in our country. And then there was the reciprocal violence in Dallas, claiming five police officers, and then in Baton Rouge, claiming three more police officers. And then there have been, uh, there have been similar uh, attacks all over the United States that haven't made the news to the same degree. And then last week, a 19-ton cargo truck intentionally drove into the impacted streets of Nice, France, killing 84, wounding 303 people. On Tuesday of this week, a kid with an axe got on a train in Germany. And then, like, a couple days ago, there was a gunman who opened fire at a McDonald's in Munich, claiming nine more lives. It feels like the world is fraying at the seams, does it not? And so while we've been having a conversation about the borderless gospel, the world feels like it's falling apart. Pride and greed and ignorance and fear are literally causing our streets to fill with blood and tears. And so what is Jesus saying to the church today? In a world that's divided by difference and preference and pain and violence and conflict. In a world where being right is more important than being in relationship. In a world that seems to be falling apart. What is Jesus saying to the church? And I want to argue this evening that Jesus is saying love anyway. Love anyway. Now before I, uh, I dive into the text... And begin to unpack what I mean by that. What this life looks like. A life of loving anyway. Because it's easy to say that. It's another thing to actually practice that. I want to have a conversation about Jesus. Because our perspective of who Jesus is and what Jesus looks like and what Jesus is about forms the way that we understand what Jesus is saying to us. It shapes our ears and we listen to a particular kind of Jesus. Like, for example, I have to acknowledge that as a white, heterosexual, middle-class, male leader, pastor, and innovator, I have been raised in a system with a particular construction of a well-manicured Jesus. A Jesus who says, pursue safety, keep safe, be nice. When things get too uncomfortable, feel free to look away. I, I've, I've actually followed a Jesus who promotes my accumulation of wealth and of power. I, the, the, the constructed Jesus that I've been trained to follow is one who says, hold on and be nice, and then you're going to go to heaven one day when you die. And I got to say that that kind of Jesus is the wrong kind of Jesus. 
That a Jesus who fails to push us beyond our threshold for comfort, a Jesus who promotes our accumulation of wealth and power, a Jesus who invites us to be nice until we die is a counterfeit Jesus. It is not the Jesus of the gospel, and it is not a Jesus that is worth following. Faithfulness to a Jesus who says, be nice and hold on till you die, means that a lot, a lot of people's lives are being lost all over the world. Faithfulness is is causing blood to be shed. And so I stand in front of you having repented from following my manicured construction of Jesus. And I am actively in pursuit of a more legitimate Jesus that looks like the one in the scriptures. And so if it'd be okay with you, I want to share with you who this Jesus is that feels a bit more legitimate. Is that okay? Okay. I want to begin by not suggesting, declaring that the Jesus of the Gospels looks nothing like most of us sitting in the room. I'm learning from my friend Ben McBride, he's a pastor and activist on the front lines of what's happening in Oakland right now, that the Jesus that we're to follow, the Jesus that says love anyway, is a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who lived on the underside of empire. And then I'm learning from a dark-skinned Palestinian refugee, an activist in the West Bank, that the Jesus that we follow actually understands what it means to be a Middle Eastern refugee. I'm learning from my friend Dee McIntosh. She's a pastor and activist in the streets of Minneapolis. That Jesus lived a life of lament because he was so close to the pain of the people. I'm learning from my friend Alejandra, who's a Mexican peacemaker, that Jesus' life was marked by boundless hospitality and borderless generosity. I'm learning from my friend Dominique, who's a pastor and theologian in the streets of Oakland, that ours is a Jesus who actually experienced a broken criminal justice system. He experienced the impact of flesh-tearing whips and ultimately was the victim of capital punishment. I'm learning about a more legitimate Jesus who looks like the crucified and resurrected one. Ours is a Jesus who is actively making all things new today. Ours is a Jesus who points to the cross as both his declaration of love for us, but also as his template for how we must live and love and lead in the world that we live in today. That's the kind of Jesus that says love anyway. That's the kind of Jesus who says, embrace a cross-shaped way of life so that others flourish. That's the kind of Jesus who does not say, uh, tell us to stay safe. Now how? How do we love anyway? If we're following that Jesus, how do we love anyway? You heard this story. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna play with Luke 10 for a little bit. So if you wanna go there in your, in your Bibles or in your devices. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. The, the whole encounter begins with this hot shot religious guy coming up to Jesus, trying to challenge him, and basically asks him, hey, I want to spend eternity with God and with people who are just like me. So how do I go to heaven when I die with people that I like? 
And Jesus says, well, what do the law and the prophets say? He says, well, I'm supposed to love God with everything that I am, and I'm supposed to love my neighbor too. And Jesus goes, yeah, do that, and you will live. And then the guy asks a follow-up question. He says, yeah, but who is my neighbor? Which is a really great question, right? It's an innocent kind of surface-level question. But what he's really asking, if you press him, is who am I obligated to see, and who can I ignore? I want to get really clear on who the people are that I'm responsible to love so that I can build a gate around it. I can build a fence around it and know when I'm doing it. And then I don't have to worry about all of the other people that actually inconvenience my life. And so recognizing that this kid doesn't quite get it, Jesus tells a story. And it's a story about crime and racism and hatred and mercy. It's a story about unjust systems and indifferent power structures. It's a story about apathetic religious people. And in the story, he, he answers the lawyer's questions. He exposes the heart and activity of God. And he offers a dangerous invitation of us to love anyway, not with our words, but with our lives. He says, once upon a time, there was a dangerous road. 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was dangerous then, it's dangerous now. I've walked the road. I understand how people could have felt unsafe walking this particular trail. I get why people could have hid in the shadows and jumped lonely or soul pilgrims who were making their way to and from Jerusalem. I understand it. It was a broken road. So he starts with a broken road. It wasn't hypothetically broken. It was actually broken in Jesus' day. He says there's a pilgrim making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so maybe he was there and he was performing his religious duties. Maybe he was crying out to a faithful God on behalf of his faithfulness. Maybe he was meeting with family. Maybe he was a merchant and doing business. Regardless, he's on his way to Jericho. Maybe that's where he lives. He knows that he's on a dangerous road. He knows that it's precarious for him to be doing this alone. And as he's on his way, there's a community of bandits who jump him. Now, that community of bandits, they were lying in wait, watching for the lonely pilgrim, which means that when they saw the pilgrim, they didn't see his humanity. They didn't see his dignity. They didn't see the image of God in him. They saw him as an object that they could exploit, and so they did it. They took from him. They beat him, they robbed him, they stripped him, and they left him for dead, naked and unconscious. Suddenly, there's a voiceless victim on a broken road. Now, so quickly, we want to move past that because I'm talking with Christian people and let's get on to the pious religious folk that are about to walk up, right? Um, we, we don't identify with the bandits, but I don't want to move on too quickly quite yet. I ask you, have you ever considered why there are bandits hiding in shadows, preying upon people to get whatever they can get from them? Like, is this... Are they doing it for sport? Or are they doing it to survive? Obviously, I'm not condoning the activity of the bandit to take and, and, and rob. I am asking the question, what are the systems in play because of the religious environment and because of the political, the power environment from the Roman Empire that actually create systems that, that actually cause people to have to move out to the edges. They have nothing. They have to actually reside in the shadows of dangerous roads. And the only way that they can survive is by preying upon other people and taking from them. 
So while we might not resonate with the bandits as like, wow, that kind of feels like me, we are a part of creating systems that push people to the edges where they have to hide in the shadows of dangerous roads, where they have to do whatever they have to do in order to survive. So before we write them off as crazy bandits, we actually need to look at ourselves and go, hmm, how are we contributing to a system that's causing bandits to hide in shadows? So then Jesus continues the story, and it's the pious, they appear, it's the religious leader, it's the priest. He's on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho because that's where the priests live. They wanted to go and do their work in Jerusalem, but they wanted to get out of Jerusalem because it's intense there, and Jericho is a bit better of a climate. So as the story goes, this priest is making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he sees the voiceless victim. All sorts of dilemmas are going off for him. First and foremost, he understands that he is on a broken road. This is the evidence of it. He's heard stories about the broken road. Maybe this is the umpteenth voiceless victim that he's stumbled over on this particular road. So what if he's thinking, gosh, if I pull up next to this guy, if I check for vitals, if I see if he's even alive, am I the next voiceless victim? Is this a setup? Is this an ambush? Or maybe he's thinking this might be a a sinner. Maybe he had this coming to him. Maybe the blood that is formed, or the mud that is forming from his blood, maybe that's what he deserves. Or maybe he's thinking, gosh, that might be a a Gentile, in which that might be a Samaritan, in which case, you know, there's all sorts of things going on for him. But then there's this whole dilemma of faithfulness. You see, the priest, his understanding is my job is to actually work on behalf of the people. So I have to stay clean. I have to stay distant from the muck of humanity. If I'm going to do my job and cry out to a faithful God on behalf of a faithless people, I have to keep my shoes clean. And so it's his misunderstanding of faithfulness that causes him to step around the life of a human being who is in desperate need. In that moment, the most worshipful, faithful thing to do would have been to enter into the story of the broken individual. But I think there's one more, uh, one more dilemma that, that the priest was dealing with, and that was perhaps he had heard over and over and over again the cries of the people to fix the broken road. He has the power and the authority as the spiritual leader, as the cultural leader. He was the political leader of the time. He had the power to fix the broken road. And so maybe seeing another voiceless victim, it stirred something in him of such shame and guilt. This road is not yet fixed and there's another person who suffers all of that stuff is probably going on and so he notices the voiceless victim but he doesn't see him this is a compromising inconvenience he sidesteps him and he keeps on going to jericho and then you've got the second tier religious leader coming by it's the levite the levite is probably dealing with all of the same sets of questions But added to the Levite's dilemma is the fact that the priest didn't do anything. So if like the upper echelon faith leader isn't going to address this, why should I? No pressure, pastors. But do you know what I'm saying? I mean, how many of us have said, I'm going to follow my leader. 
I'm going to take my cues from the faith leaders. I'm going to take my cues from, from the religious elite. When I see them, then I'm going to actually engage in something. So maybe that's what the Levite's dealing with. And I would say for both of these men, their sight was blurred. They noticed, but they didn't see. There's a great distance, a great divide between noticing and seeing. Noticing generates in us discomfort, and usually it causes us to look away. But seeing, that generates in us compassion, and it fuels merciful action. Church, we're really good at noticing, and we're terrible at seeing. Our vision is blurred. We've got cataracts. We see particular versions of reality, reality that we choose. We need our sight healed. And the good news is Jesus was a sight healer and is a sight healer still. Go with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 35 in your Black Bibles, page 853. Luke 18, 35 and following says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Oh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Then he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he shouted even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Quick caveat, isn't it amazing that the blind guy is the only one who's crystal clear on who Jesus is? Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. You are the one who can help me see. So Jesus stood still and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, because this is what Jesus does. He draws near and he asks us questions. Jesus gets curious with us. And when Jesus gets curious, it brings us deeper into our experience of reality. Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Which is like a, duh, Jesus. Seriously? Bro is blind. What do you mean, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they praised God. There is a sight healing that needs to happen with us, church. And just like blind Bartimaeus, it begins with us crying out in desperation for Jesus to heal us. Are we aware that we're blind? Do we recognize that we have cataracts in our eyes? Do we understand that our sight is blurry? It's narrow. We need a sight healer. Do we have the courage to say, Jesus, I am blind and I want to see? Because that's where healing begins. Healing is not going to happen unless we first acknowledge, I am blind. I don't see in HD yet. And then Jesus, he comes up, what do you want me to do? I want to see. And Jesus heals him. And I think that Jesus can heal our sight immediately. I'm a part of creating experiences for people that are all about sight healing. I take them into places all over the world where they see things that they could not even imagine. 
And I watched Jesus heal people's sight like this. Their whole lives changed because now they can see unlike they've ever seen before. But what I've realized is if we're going to have sight healed, we actually need to join Jesus in that healing. There's some action that, that we need to take. We need to actually find ourselves intentionally displaced. We need to find ourselves among minority leaders. We need to diversify our media outlets. We have to do anything we can possibly do to start to see things that we've never seen before. So as we join Jesus in that, Jesus is a sight healer. He heals our sight. In, back in the story, there's a, a, a Samaritan that enters. And in, you have to understand, when Jesus is telling this story, when he said, but then a certain Samaritan, when he said the word Samaritan, everybody like closed the ears of their kids. They're like, whoa, this story's already bloody enough, Jesus. They're thinking, gosh, if a Samaritan is introduced into the story, he's not here to help. He's here to finish the job. This is no longer going to be a voiceless victim. Why? Because Samaritans, they're half-breeds with a tainted religion. They're prone to violence. They're a violent people. Generally speaking, they're a violent people, don't you know, right? And so when Jesus introduces the word Samaritan, oh man, it's going to get bloody. But here's the great twist. Jesus actually elevates the despised Samaritan as the only one who doesn't allow racial or cultural bias to stand in the way of seeing the voiceless victim. See, what did the voiceless, uh, what did the Samaritan see? He saw someone who was naked and unconscious, which means that he wouldn't have had any idea whose tribe he was. He wouldn't have heard his language or his dialect. He wouldn't have known whose he was. But there is this indication that he had this sense of whose he was. The Samaritan saw the humanity and the dignity and the image of God in the voiceless victim. He saw his pain and he saw his plight. And what he saw stopped him dead in his tracks. It became the most important thing in the world to him. So loving anyway, friends, it begins with seeing. It begins with healed sight. Now pay attention to what happens in the story next. Because as U.S. Americans, we're really good at noticing, diagnosing, and solving. We're known for it. It's in, it's our cultural DNA and it's caused unbelievably beautiful things to happen in the world. But in this particular story, notice that the Samaritan doesn't see and then immediately go to solve. And rather, all of the verbs that happen in this passage are v verbs of movement toward. So instead of getting to solution, all the Samaritan did is turn and began to move toward the pain. He immersed into the radical center of this broken story. Now, if you and I were to stand on a beach together at the ocean, and, and I were to ask you to describe the ocean to me, you know, you would probably talk about how the sun shimmers off the, the water. You would talk to me about the sand and the feeling of it under your toes. You might talk about the lifeguard chair. You might talk about the people playing and the seagulls, seagulling. And, you, you know, you, we would, and you would be dead right. You would be accurate. But if you and I put on scuba gear and immersed into the ocean, we would discover a whole new kind of reality. 
our descriptions of the ocean would be far more robust, would they not? Immersion helps us see things as they really are. Now, there are all sorts of obstacles, and and here's the problem with immersion for us, and I think why we skip immersion and go right to solutions. Immersion is relational, it's messy, it's awkward, it takes a lot of time. We get muck on us, our shoes get dirty. Immersion is inconvenient. And so there are all sorts of obstacles that actually keep us from immersing, like our, our tendency for innovation and efficiency. We want to solve. We want to get to it. We want to get it done so that we can move on to the next problem and get after that. Well, that's not how big, huge problems get fixed. That's not how relationships are restored. It takes time. There's nothing efficient about relationships. We live such uninterruptible lives. We're living at such a pace that like the pain of voiceless victims, we don't have time for that. I don't have the bandwidth in my life to actually be interrupted by your pain. Or there's this whole image management thing. We've worked so hard to cultivate a reputation and a particular kind of of image that if we actually immerse into that person's brokenness, that might disqualify me from something. My image, my reputation might take a hit. If I immerse into my them, if I immerse into the gay community or the black community or the Hispanic community or the migrant community or the refugee community or whatever your them is, if I immerse into them, it might cost me my reputation. Here's what I'm learning. As I immerse into my them, It disqualifies me from nothing, but rather it is the absolute best expression of my faith. Remember, in Jesus, we discover a God who put on flesh and immersed into the radical center of our broken story. And he was here for 30 years before he did anything. It was his immersion that actually meant that he could bleed so that we could live. And so if we're going to love anyway, yeah, it starts with seeing, but it requires immersion. We have to become people who listen longer than feels comfortable. We have to distance ourselves from this hero mentality, this need to solve, and actually assume a learning posture. It's when we're there and sitting there that that we begin to actually understand what's real and how we can help. As we see and immerse, we discover what it actually means to contend. And if you look at contending, again, the verbs that are used in, um, in this particular story, the, the good Samaritan, he really all he does is repurpose what he already has. Like, it's not like he had a first aid kit. He didn't have, like, Band-Aids and, you know, Neosporin. But he had garments, and he had oil, and he had wine, and all of a sudden he repurposed them to actually meet the need. One of the things that actually interrupts our ability to live a costly, creative life is we say, oh, I don't have the right tools. I don't have the right training. I don't have the right resources. And all the while, when I read the text, I keep watching God say, you don't need anything else. I've already given you what you need. It's already in your hands. Repurpose what you already have. 
And then he leverages his experience and his knowledge. He begins to actually care. And then he opens up a larger network. He recognizes that I can't contribute. I can't be the sole person to bring this person to a place of restoration. I need more people. I need more resources. And so he opens up a larger network. He contends in costly and creative ways that ultimately lead to restoration. Now here's the... Here's the deal, y'all. In Jesus, we discover a God who sees our humanity, our dignity, and his image in us. He saw our pain and our plight, but it didn't cause him to end the story. Instead, he put on flesh and immersed into the radical center of it. And while he was there, his life was marked by costly, creative, collaborative contending. In the life and death of Jesus, we discover a God who contended for our flourishing, not at military overthrow, but at the cost of his own life. Friends, that is the gospel. Ours is a God who sees us immersed into our reality and contended for us at the cost of his blood all the way to our restoration. Now, here's the great surprise. It didn't end with the cross and the empty tomb, but now we get to be the embodiment of the gospel. The gospel continues to move forward as we love anyway, as we become the people who see and immerse and contend. And here's the beauty. As we see and immerse and contend, we actually join God in his work of restoration. It starts to spring to life all over the place. See, we're not here to cloister in a sterile place, learn about God, become morally intellectual, and then hold on till we die. No, we're here as gospel people to join God actively in ushering in the world that he's making. There is a role to play. And here's the world that God is making. It's a world where brothers and sisters no longer kill brothers and sisters. The world that God is making and that we get to be a part of is a world where hashtags no longer take the place of people's lives. The world that God is making and that we get to be a part of as we love anyway is a world where women and children are no longer exploited for the pleasures of men, where human beings are no longer owned by the powerful or trapped in cages. The world that God is making and that we get to join him in ushering in is a world where, where senseless gun violence no longer leaves dead kids in our streets. It's a world where immigrants no longer hide in fear in overcrowded apartments in our neighborhoods. The world that God is making and that we get to be a part of by loving anyway is a world where addiction no longer has power, where hunger and thirst no longer plague humanity, where children are no longer trapped in systems without families. The world that God is making and that we get to be a part of is a world where capitalism no longer trumps compassion. And where consumption no longer trumps generosity. And where my flourishing no longer trumps yours. That's the world God's making. And we get to be a part of it. So what is Jesus saying to us in a world divided by difference and preference and pain and violence? What is Jesus saying to us 
in a world where being right is more important than being in relationship? What is Jesus saying to us in a world that seems to be falling apart? Love anyway. That's God's word for us this evening. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.